Good morning, City Walk Church. How are we this morning? Come on. Well, I, I'm glad that you're here. We, we've had a really good week this past week, uh, Easter Sunday. Uh, we, if you guys were here, we had a couple services, and uh, it was an awesome Sunday. We had just a little over 300 people that, that came on Easter, and then we had several people that, that made professions of faith, and so it was cool to watch God work uh, this past Sunday, and even some of the stories that we've heard since Sunday uh, has just been been neat to watch how God uses a little invitation or a door hanger or that somebody that saw a, a sign in somebody's yard and they came to Easter and God uses that to just make a difference in their life. And so can we get excited because some people made decisions for Jesus last week? Like we, we always celebrate, we never, never, never uh, lose our excitement when even one person makes a decision to move closer in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And, and that's, as Cabin said, what we are about here. And uh, so we get excited about that, whether that's a preschooler or whether that's somebody that has been on this earth for 70, 80, 90 years, when anybody takes a step to move in their relationship with Jesus. That's an exciting thing. Uh, over the next few weeks, we have an exciting May planned, and I wanted to give you a quick update. Uh, next week, it's going to be a normal week. We'll be here in the multi-purpose room. And then the following week, and if you don't know this, guys, go ahead and make note now, it's Mother's Day. So you got two weeks, if you didn't know that already. Uh, it's May 12th. And on May 12th, is the, it's the one Sunday when we reserved this space that this space was already going to be used. And so basically what we're going to do is we're going to have church on the other side of the campus. So on May 12th, two weeks from today, we'll be in the large gym, the basketball gym. It'll set up just very similar to this. Kids will still check in and we'll, they'll use the same classrooms, but we'll be meeting on that side. But we will put somebody on this side just in case you show up and are like, well, I get to preach, sing, and greet everyone. I'm like the only one at church Sunday. And so that's on May 12th. And then on May 19th, this is a Sunday that I've been excited about, honestly, since we started City Walk. On May 19th, we want you to come to church, but we want you to leave your church clothes at home. And we want you to come in your work clothes. Because what we're going to do from about 10.30 to 12 is we're going to serve River Valley High School. And we're going to do projects for them. We're going to love on this school. And so we are working with their principal on some projects that we can do that our whole family can be involved in. We'll still have uh, nursery for babies and preschool. But on that day for about an hour and a half, instead of having church, we're going to serve our city by serving this school. And so that's going to be a fun day, and then we'll have some pizza afterwards. Uh, and so, But that's on May 19th, and so just watch social media over the next few weeks, and we'll keep you up to date on that. But, but May's going to be a really fun week. And today, because we want to celebrate what happened at Easter at the end of church today, I hope you're a dessert before lunch person. We are at City Walk Church because Jesus is going to come back, and so we might as well eat dessert first in case he comes back. So we're, we're going to have ice cream sandwiches and ice cream bars and all that kind of stuff uh, right after church in the lobby, and so uh, to just celebrate what God did this past week. And so I uh, hope you're hungry, and uh, if not, then I'll eat yours, and I'll have two. When, when we uh, thought about this series that we were starting today, 
I, I started to think about what are some of the questions, and maybe you have to think back a little ways, what are some of the questions that you had that you asked when you were a little kid? When, when you were a little kid, you, you are, were really curious, and, and if you have preschoolers or elementary age kids or grandkids, you know that little kids are very curious, and they ask a lot of questions. And when they're little, it's cute. And so, man, we're, we're, the, the questions they ask are cute, and we put them on Facebook and Instagram. We tape them saying those questions and put them on there, because what they say is cute, until they say something really awkward, and, and you've had that happen. I remember my daughter Julia, our second uh, oldest, she would, there was a phase in her preschool that every waitress that we encountered at a restaurant, she would ask them, do you have a baby in your tummy? And it, if there was just a little extra weight on any level, she would look at them and assume they were pregnant and she would ask that question to the point where we told her, Julia, you are, you are going to get in trouble if you even say something nice to the waitress. You're not allowed to talk to the waitress. It's against the rules because she would ask that question. And when you're young, even though they're awkward, it's, it's kind of cute and, and you remember those things and then you use them in sermon illustrations 10 or 12 years later. But as you get older and you begin to ask questions at when you're older, your questions change. And the questions aren't necessarily as cute. And sometimes the questions are still met with graciousness and people that want to talk about the questions and, and answer your questions and have discussions. But a lot of times when you get older and you begin to ask hard questions, people take it personally. And those questions aren't necessarily met with the same graciousness that the questions were met with when you were a little kid. And sometimes the questions are even met with anger because of fear while you're even asking the question. And over the next few weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to throw out some of the big questions that we've all had about God and Christianity, and, and one of the things we're going to try to do is we're not going to try to answer every question and fit it all in a box and put a really nice bow on it at the end of each service. But what our desire is by asking some of the questions that, were, that you're thinking and that maybe you're afraid to ask or maybe you are grappling with, our goal is to investigate these questions and maybe look at a few perspectives and insights that we may have not have, have thought of in the past. And unfortunately, the church has not always been a safe place to ask those types of questions. In, in many cases, and maybe, maybe you have stories about being a student and, and coming to a, a pastor, a youth pastor, a leader, and asking a question and being kind of shunned or told, hey, you should have more faith, or kind of given this pat cute answer that really didn't make a lot of sense, but they, they kind of gave you that answer to kind of get you off their back. And, and so for you, maybe that's your experience asking questions in church. A, another thing that maybe you've experienced in church, and it's, it's kind of sad, is that over the years in, in churches, we have been very disrespectful to people we disagree with. It bothers me so much, and I'm constantly embarrassed by Jesus followers who take to social media to blast people that think differently than they do. 
And maybe you've experienced that too, where, man, you, you've, when you think of a, somebody that's a follower of Jesus, man, you think of, man, they're like the people that put the most random, weird, angry things on Facebook out of anybody I know. And, and, and honestly, it's not really the way it should be because questions should not be taken personally. And in fact, there is a healthy questioning and even skepticism that actually helps bolster our faith. And so questions are not bad. Jesus was never afraid of questions, which is why this series is so relevant, whether you're somebody who's a follower of Jesus or if you're somebody that you'd say, you know what, I'm, I'm kind of skeptical, I'm kind of uh, investigating, I'm not sure what I really believe about this whole Jesus thing. This series is so helpful to both of us because every single one of us puts our confidence somewhere. And so whether you're the person that has been following Jesus for 40 years or whether you're an atheist, agnostic, skeptic that's been invited here or or came because you saw we were doing this series, regardless of which lane you're in, whether it's the why do I believe that lane or the why don't I believe that lane, this series is going to be very helpful to all of us. If you're here and you would say, Chris, I'm in the lane of skeptic, I'm agnostic, atheist, I'm, I would kind of fit in that lane, here's what I would ask you to do. W- would you be willing to doubt your doubts? Would you be willing to maybe question some of your questions? I, I know this is hard because we naturally lean into those who affirm what we believe. I get it. I do the same thing. But if you find yourself in that that lane of skeptic, would you just be willing over the next few weeks to just question some of the questions that you've had? Would you be willing to maybe doubt just a little bit some of the doubts that you've had about God and Christianity? If you would say, Chris, I would more fit in the follower of Jesus lane, then, then here's my challenge to you kind of over the next few weeks, and it's really a challenge that Peter gives us in 1 Peter. He says this in 1 Peter, he says, always be prepared to give an answer or a defense to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you personally have. He doesn't say always be prepared to answer every question, to defend every verse, to defend all of church history, to defend the dude that embezzled money five years ago from the church you went to. He's not saying you have to be able to defend all those things. What he is saying is this. Be prepared to defend your decision to follow Jesus. Be prepared to defend your hope or confidence in Jesus. Not win an argument. But just be prepared to defend not every verse in the whole Bible, every hard question in the whole Bible, but just why do you follow Jesus? Be willing and ready to defend that with graciousness. And Peter, he was able to do that because the foundation of his faith, the foundation of his hope was what we talked about last week. It was an event in history called the resurrection. And for Peter, he was a guy that, man, he was with Jesus before Jesus died. 
He remembered the night Jesus was killed. He, he was there when the tomb was empty. He had breakfast with Jesus after he rose from the dead. He spent time with Jesus after he rose from the dead. And so for Peter, anytime somebody can predict their death and resurrection and pull it off, you listen to what that guy has to say. And the foundation of the Jesus movement, or our hope, is the event of the resurrection. That's why I don't, I, I, I don't know never shakes my faith. Like if you come up to me after church and you ask me like this hard, crazy biblical question and I don't know the answer, I'm not leaving here thinking, do I really even believe what I think I believe? Am I, do I even want to be a follower of Jesus? No, because you know what? I don't have the answer to every question, but here's what I do know. Jesus died, he rose from the grave, and that's the foundation for my hope, my faith. It's the reason I follow Jesus. I wrote this in my notes. What is undeniable trumps what is unexplainable every time. What is undeniable is that Jesus was killed He was put in a grave, and he rose from the grave. That is undeniable. You go back into history, people saw him. There's evidence of his resurrection. And so because of what is undeniable, it always trumps the things that I don't understand, the unexplainable. And there are things that I don't understand. But it starts with the resurrection, if you're a follower of Jesus. And so whether you find yourself kind of in the lane of skeptic, agnostic, kind of questioning whether you even believe any of this stuff, or whether you find yourself in the lane of Jesus follower that's not even really sure you know why you believe what you believe, this series is going to be very helpful for you because if we're honest, every single one of us grapple with some big questions, no matter what lane we're in. And one of the biggest questions that we grapple with or one of the things we can't wrap our head around is the problem of pain and suffering. If you find yourself in in the kind of the skeptic lane, this might be the biggest reason you haven't embraced Jesus. Because in your mind, you can't put together, you can't match up. How is what I'm seeing happen around the world? How does that work with a good and loving God? And so you have questions that you grapple with. Jerry Sitzer, in a book he wrote called A Grace Disguised, he quoted an undergrad English major named Hillary, and Hillary said it this way, I just don't believe the God of Christianity exists. God allows terrible suffering in the world, so he might be either all-powerful but not good enough to end evil and suffering, or else he might be all-good but not powerful enough to end evil and suffering. Either way, the all-good, all-powerful God of the Bible couldn't exist. And maybe you haven't said it quite like this, but if you're honest, you've had the same question. We don't like tension. We would like to take pain, suffering, trials, and put it in a really nice box, be able to close that box, understand it and throw a bow on it and say it's all fixed or at least I understand it but we don't we don't instead the posture that we need to bring to this discussion no matter what lane we're in is we need to bring with us to the question of pain humility 
because we have a very limited perspective. On your seat, you may not even have known it, you're sitting on a piece, a puzzle piece. So if, if you're, and it, it won't be awkward if you have to reach back right now, I, I'm not going to tell anybody, but you're sitting on a puzzle piece. And this puzzle piece is, is it's a small piece of a thousand piece puzzle. And so you, you look at your piece, go ahead and you know, look at your piece, and, and you might be able to, like, is this a puzzle of the Smurfs? Is this a puzzle of, like, some people hunting? Is this a puzzle of the NFL, you know, such and such a team? Because usually when you look at that one little puzzle piece, I mean, you might make, make some judgments or you might, you know, have some opinions, but at the end of the day, our perspective is pretty limited, in fact, for you to really understand how this puzzle is even relevant, you would have to see, and you won't be able to because it's a small one, but you'd have to see the whole picture. And, and when you can see the whole picture, every puzzle piece makes sense. But when all you have is one little piece of a puzzle, your perspective is, is pretty limited. And, and for us, whether we like it or not, this is our life. I mean, actually, for it to be our life, I'd have to, like, cut this thing in about 100 pieces and take a sliver of it. This is our perspective. This is our life. God's the author of the whole picture. He's the author of, of the, the picture. He's sovereign over the whole thing. And so when God looks at the big picture, it all makes sense. And if we could see the whole picture... It wouldn't necessarily feel better. It wouldn't necessarily be that, hey, everything's great, but it would at least make sense because we could see the whole picture. But what we do at the church, we're awful at this. We take one little perspective of the big picture and we make these like huge judgments of God. We make these huge judgments of people's motives, of the future. All these things based on our little perspective of the big picture. And the church is the worst at this. I remember after 9-11, you do too. You probably were as furious as I was. People going on TV saying, the reason 9-11 happened was because God was angry and he, you fill in the blank of uh, this group or because of this sin of this country. It's like, are you with your little perspective, you're going to tell me that all the reason for this pain and suffering of 9-11 is you actually know what it is? But, but we do that. We take our little perspective and we throw it on God and we make huge judgments. And what we should do, no matter what lane we're in, is we should bring to the conversation humility, understanding my perspective is extremely limited. And it won't all make sense even if I had the answer to every question because I don't have the whole picture. And I won't see the whole picture until I'm into eternity. And then it might not matter what the whole picture was at that point. And so from a place of humility, what I want to do this morning quickly is let's look at a few things that we know about suffering and pain that I think will help us. They won't answer every question. They won't, our, our goal is not to downplay hurt or the devastation that you might actually be feeling right now because of something you're going through. 
But instead, our, our focus is, let's see if we can broaden our perspective just a little bit about pain and suffering. And so the first thought, as, as we think about this, is this. Suffering points to the reality of God. And you say, eh, isn't it the opposite? Because wouldn't some people say that, that because of evil and suffering, there can't be a good God? And that would be a, 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 like, yeah, that's a good perspective. But, but I would say this, that suffering actually points to the reality that there is a God. Because, and here's why, there's something inside of you and something inside of me, no matter what your upbringing was, no matter what your faith background is, that's the same as people in another country that were brought up in a different way, that were brought up in a whole different culture, there's some things inside of us that every single person would say, this ought not to be this way. No matter what your upbringing was, there's just certain things that nobody had to teach us that, that we just all know that, you know what, this ought not to be. You look at suffering of children or innocent people around the world, you didn't have to be brought up a certain way to have something inside of you that says, this ought not to be. And so the question is, where did the ought not to be come from? This is a question that C.S. Lewis, that actually moved C.S. Lewis from being an atheist to being a theist. Because for him, here's what his perspective was. He thought, you know what, there's certain things inside of me that I say they ought not to be. And there seems to be the same thing in other people. And for me and for other people to have that and to not be taught that, who put that there? And for him, it, it's what led him to believe there was a God is the fact that, hey, something outside of me put something inside of me that made me and all of humanity know that certain things ought not to be. C.S. Lewis, in his, his book, Mere Christianity, he says it this way, supposing you hear it's the next one. Supposing you hear a cry for help from a man in danger, you will probably feel two desires. One, a desire to give help due to your herd instinct. The other, a desire to keep out of danger due to the instinct of self-preservation. But what you will find inside of you, in addition to these two impulses, a third thing which tells you that you ought to follow the impulse to help and suppress the impulse to run away. And see, it was this idea that drove him to recognize that there was a moral lawgiver, that there was something outside of him that put this on the inside of him that he didn't produce, that no one taught him. And so for, for, for us as we think about this, where did your idea of evil and suffering even come from? Like what makes this evil and that not evil? There's something inside of us that did that. And so actually pain and suffering is maybe a bigger problem for someone who's an atheist than someone who's a theist because it points to the fact that someone outside of us puts something on the inside of us that just tells us that certain things ought not to be. The second thing is as you think about suffering, and, and, and kind of how to broaden our perspective, 
we see that suffering points to the reality of God. But also, suffering reminds us that freedom is required for real relationship. And, and here's what I mean. God's desire from the beginning has always been a relationship. And, and God has also always given man the freedom to choose. And, and so if you, if you think about this, it, could God make us all a puppet? Absolutely. Could God just make us do if he chose to, like, you're going to do it this way, you're going to do this, you're going to do this, and could we just all be his puppets if, if he wanted us to be? Yes. He, he's all-powerful, he's all-sovereign, but if he made us all puppets, the relationship would cease to exist because we would just be robots doing exactly what God told us and exactly what God made us do. I remember uh, Lori and I, when we got engaged, we got engaged, we're, we're on our 21st year of marriage. This is actually a picture, not of when we got engaged, but in front of the lighthouse that we got engaged, uh, in front of many years before this picture was taken. And, and the night, I actually looked for the picture, but we didn't have, like, phones like we have now, so you had, like, an actual picture that you had to find in a drawer. And I couldn't find the one of the night we actually got engaged. But, but what happened that night is, it was the 4th of July, and so I had this grand plan of, of building this little fire on the south point of what was called Word of Life Island. It was a camp we were working at. And so me and a buddy of mine and his, his fiance went out there with Lori, and, and the goal was to kind of have this fire, and it'd be like this magical moment. And I had a sign, will you marry me on that lighthouse? But it was the windiest night in the history of this city. And so I'm already nervous. I got a ring in my pocket, and I can't get this fire lit. And it's like the magic is leaving very quickly. No s'mores are going to take. I mean, it's just not going to happen the way I, I had figured it. And so I had to think of this random, weird way to get my, my then just girlfriend to walk like 30 yards to this lighthouse so that she would see this sign. So I think I said something like, hey, come look at my favorite part of the island whatever. So she, she was gracious and walked over there and turned around. The sign was there. And then when she turned back around, I was on my knee with my ring and asked her to marry me. And, and here's what made that, that night special. What made that night special and what made that yes special was that she didn't have to say yes. I mean, I was really hoping and I like put some money into the ring. So I had a pretty good clue that she would say yes, but she didn't have to. So, so when she said yes, that made it very special because the relationship with, that we had was a relationship of choosing. I didn't have to ask her to marry me that night. I could have, and I would have been told no by other girls, but I could have asked anybody else to marry me, but I chose that night to ask Lori to marry me because of the relationship we had, and she chose, didn't have to, to say yes to me when she could have said no, which is what made it special. If the same scenario would have happened and she would have went over to the lighthouse and turned around and there's a beautiful sign, will you marry me? And then when she turned around, I was on my knee with a ring in this hand and a bazooka in this hand. It would have took the magic away from the yes. Oh yeah, I'll marry you. What do you need me to say? I'll do whatever you need me to do. Because then it's, it's obnoxious, obviously. But of course, it's no longer special because she's doing something because she has to. But when there's freedom of choice, the yes is more special because it's about a relationship. 
And so as we think about this idea and this, this reality of suffering, it reminds us that freedom is required for real relationship. With choice comes the potential for rejection and suffering. When we're given a choice, we can say no, and from that rejection comes suffering sometimes. When we take away the potential for good, we also have to take away the potential for bad. And so the best possible world is a world where men and women are free to sin, but freely choose not to because of a relationship with Jesus. And suffering reminds us that, you know what? Could God make us all do exactly what he wanted and be a puppet? Yes. But because relationship is so important to God, he gives us that freedom. And when we have freedom all throughout history, we have chosen wrong choices. And because of those wrong choices, there has come about suffering. And if God wanted to stop it all, he could, but the relationship would cease to exist because without freedom, there is no relationship. And so suffering reminds us that freedom is required for real relationship. Another thought on suffering, real quickly. Suffering is a tool that God uses to make us more like Jesus. The Bible says it this way in Romans chapter 28 and 28, 28 and 29. It says, and you know this first verse, you've seen it on coffee cups, on plaques, on pillowcases, but rarely do you see the next verse. The verse you've seen is, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. You're like, yes, put that on a coffee mug. For those who are called according to his purpose. But then in verse 29, it says this. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And so here's what it's saying. The good things in our life, the bad things in our life, the things that we would trade in tomorrow, and, and every single one of us has things in our life right now that have happened to us over the years that if we could trade them in tomorrow, done. I don't even care if it's going to make me more like Jesus. If I could trade it in, I'd still trade it in, if you're honest. But here's, here's what it does. It doesn't minimize it. It doesn't minimize the pain. It doesn't minimize the suffering. It doesn't minimize any of it. But what it does do is it brings a little bit of purpose to it. That we know that, you know what? The thing that hurt me the deepest in my life. God is uniquely using that to make me more like his son. And yes, I trade it in tomorrow. Because I don't have the big picture. And I only have the little part of the picture. And my little part of the picture says it sucks. But here's what I know. What God has allowed into my life, he's allowed it into for my good, his glory, to make me more like his son. And because of that, there's a much bigger picture than what I see. If you've ever been in athletics, you understand this on a, on a little perspective. And specifically, if you're a coach, if you're a coach, you don't look at your players and say, hey, as soon as this gets hard, we'll stop. As soon as you start to get a little wore out, just we'll stop. We're going to stop practice right then. No, you, we all wish we had a coach like that. 
But, but usually the coach is like, oh, you're, you're starting to get tired? Well, actually, it's time to run another lap then. Because your coach knows this, that in the pain and in the struggle is actually where the growth happens for the athlete and also for the person. The coach knows that. And, and, and you know what? The same thing, if you were to look back at your life and say that the times when God, I was the most intimate with God, the times in my life that I can remember growing the most, most of us would point to things that were not necessarily happy times. Most of us wouldn't point to like the greatest victory in our life as, hey, that's where God taught me the most and I got the most intimate with God. Most of us would point to the the one or two times in our life that it was the worst time in our life from our perspective. The biggest, most tragic thing in our life happened. But yet we would say, as much as I'd like to trade it in, there was an intimacy And a peace I had with God that I literally cannot explain this side of heaven. Suffering is a tool that God uses to make us more like his son. Last thing. Suffering stirs in us a longing for something better. See, is our world broken? Absolutely. Could God stop it? Yes. Why is he patient? Why is he patient with evil when it breaks his heart? The reason he waits is you and me. 2 Peter 3.9 says it this way. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. God's not just slow at this thing. It's not like, well, if if he could fix it all, he would, but he's just slow. He'll catch up. No, 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 no. God's not slow. He's not slow in keeping his promises as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And and so suffering stirs in us this longing for something better because, yes, our world is broken and and we look up and say, God, why don't you stop this? Why don't you change this? I know this breaks your heart. Why won't you make it go away? And God says, because I love humanity so much and I don't want anyone to go into eternity without a relationship with me. I want everyone to come to a place of repentance. I want everyone to come to a place where they change their mind about me and embrace me. I want a relationship with anyone, everyone. I don't want them to leave this earth and go into eternity. I want the nets to be fuller. I want heaven to be more full. I don't want anybody to go without a relationship. And so I wait. I wait. As my heart breaks, I wait because I don't want anybody to perish. And it's in this waiting that there's something inside of us that whether you're, you, you're in a lane that you would say, I'm, I'm skeptical, I'm, I'm investigating faith, maybe an atheist, or whether you'd say, I'm a person who's a, a longtime follower of Jesus, no matter what lane you're in, there's something inside of us that longs for something better that longs for wholeness, that longs for flourishing. There's something inside of us, no matter where we are on the faith spectrum, that knows it has to be better. There's something else. Ecclesiastes says it this way. 
Ecclesiastes 3.11, Solomon said it this way. He said, he has also set eternity in the human heart. That no matter where you are on the Jesus following thing, that God has put eternity in your heart. He's put something in your heart that says there's more out there. There's something out there. There's more hope. There's more flourishing. There's better times. There's something in the future that's better, and we can't explain it, but it's inside of us. Whether we're a follower of Jesus or not, whether we're an atheist or not, there's something inside of us that we can't explain that longs for something better, that longs for wholeness, that longs for flourishing, and it's something inside of us. And Solomon, one of the wisest men who ever lived, King Solomon says, it's God who has set eternity in the heart of every man and woman. In Romans it says, not only do we have a longing in our heart, but literally that all of creation is longing for the day when all the wrong will be made right. Which is If you follow C.S. Lewis and and his journey and some of the things he wrote even in the Narnia series, you see this all throughout his writings about one day all the wrong will will be made right. And it was, it was suffering and pain that actually led C.S. Lewis to embrace that there was a God and that, that, that God would actually give us a Redeemer that one day would make everything right. All the hurt would go away. All the brokenness would be healed. That it would all come back to the way it was supposed to originally be. And so as we wrap this up a little bit, Do we like suffering? No. Do we understand suffering? Nope. Would we change it if we could? Yes. Every one of us would. Is it a reason to reject Jesus? No. See, if if you kind of find yourself in the, in the lane where you've dismissed Christianity because you've asked yourself, how could a good God allow this? I apologize to you because somebody did not explain Christianity to you the right way. Because actually, all the people that were at the epicenter of this movement in the beginning all suffered severely. And, and, and the actual, the, the center of the whole movement is our Savior, Jesus Christ, who actually entered into pain on purpose. And so if somebody taught you, and again, I apologize to you because I know this teaching's out there, that hey, if, if, if you're a follower of Jesus, it's all roses and ice cream, and, and it's all, everything's marshmallows and fluffy and good, and they lied to you. Because... The only problem that I have with that statement is the Bible. And Paul, he was beheaded. Isaiah was cut in two. John, he was skinned alive, or actually boiled in oil, and then banished to an island. Peter was crucified. History tells us that he did not want to be crucified in the same way his Savior was, so he asked them to crucify him upside down. 
And we could just go down the list of the people that were at the epicenter of the whole movement and how severely they suffered. But the reason they were willing to suffer is because they really believed that Jesus Christ went into a grave. He got up out of the grave. And there was a better future because of his sacrifice. In fact, it says this in Hebrews chapter 11. It says that some of the people actually died before the promise came. They died horrific deaths, dying with the promise still in the future, but they died believing it would come someday. They died before Jesus was even on the planet, but they died knowing that a Redeemer was coming and it was willing, they were willing to give up their lives in excruciating ways because of what was coming. And so as we, from a place of humility, because again, our perspective is so limited, from a place of humility, here's what we should do. Here's what this kind of leads us to. It doesn't lead us to understand it all. It doesn't lead us to make all the pain go away. It's never going to happen this side of eternity. And some of you know that. You're living with, with pain right now that you know will never totally go away until you see Jesus. But what it leads us to do is simply this. It invites us into a deeper trust with Jesus. It invites us to say, Jesus, I don't understand. My perspective is limited, but it hurts. But I trust you. It hurts. Jesus, I, I cry myself to sleep because of some of the things that I've gone through. I cry myself to sleep because of some of the things I see happening around our world. But I trust you. Just like millions of people have done throughout history. He invites us into deeper trust, but then the second thing this does is he gives us the opportunity to be his hands and feet to those who are suffering. He invites us personally to trust him more, but then he says, hey, there, are, there is suffering all around the world. There's people sitting next to you right now that are, are going through tough times. You be my hands and feet. You bring redemption. You start the redeeming process in your world. You start to make things better with the power and things that I've given you. And ultimately, I'll make it all better when I return. But you're my hands and feet until I come back, so you start the process. As we close, I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. As I said at the beginning, our goal today was not to answer every question. Our goal today was not to even make the pain feel better. Because there's nothing that I could say that would do that. Especially for some of you. You've gone through some things that are horrific. And they hurt deeply. And and words from a guy on Sunday morning aren't going to take that away. And you know that. But our goal today was just to 
Look at suffering from a different perspective. Look at suffering knowing that, you know what, God, my perspective is so limited. And so what I'm doing is I'm bringing to the conversation humility. I'm bringing to the conversation trust in you, God, that though things hurt, though, Lord, I would change them tomorrow if I could, though I don't understand everything, I'm coming to you like I came to you when I accepted you as my Savior, and I'm coming to you depending on you and trusting in you. And God's then giving us the opportunity. He says, you know what? You know that hurt that you've gone through? Use it to help other people. Be my hands and feet. Redeem things that are around you. Start that process. You are my representative, my ambassador. He invites us into deeper trust, and he invites us to be his hands and feet. As I close, I'm going to pray, and I want to pray for each one of us that God would help us in the midst of our limited perspective to trust Him and to also be the hands and feet of our Savior. And if you're here this morning and you say, Chris, I'm, I'm still, I'm in that lane of investigating. I'm in that lane of skeptic, agnostic. Our goal today wasn't to sign you up to be a Jesus follower. Our goal was just to maybe throw some different perspectives out there that then you can go and and grapple with, start some conversations about, and maybe just begin to at least question your questions. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for, uh, Lord, just the hope that your word gives us. And Lord, there are many, many things. This was just one uh, subject that, Lord, we don't have all the answers to. And it would be arrogant of us to act like we do. God, I pray that as we try to be salt and light in our community, Lord, as we face things in our own life that are extremely hard, I pray that with our limited perspective that, Lord, we would bring a humility to the table that would just be refreshing to other people. I pray, Lord, that people would see our trust in you even in the dark times, and Lord, that would challenge them to maybe give Jesus another look. And God, as there are, there are people around us that are suffering, even today, Lord, I pray that we would be sensitive to the needs around us and that we would be your hands and your feet. In Jesus' name, amen.